Uh, we dealt with verses 11 and 12. So I'm not going to spend but uh, one page of manuscript referring back to verses 11 and 12, and there's a reason. We'll spend most of our time in verses 13 and 14. Last sermon, okay, dealt with uh, the overall point of those two verses, 11 and 12, being that God's people are not supposed to be crafty and deceptive people who cheat, who cheat in order to take things from others. That's a form of stealing referred to as fraud, fraud, and it's not God's way. God is a truthful giver, not a manipulative taker. But a point I didn't get to when I preached that sermon, I've kind of felt compelled I need to make mention of it this morning. And the point is that, the point is how underhandedness, underhandedness actually profanes the name of the Lord. That's what it says there in verse 12, profanes the name of the Lord. Now, what does profane mean? It means you do not respect God. You do not respect God for who he is. Instead, you treat him irreverently. You dismiss him as a concern. I'll guarantee you, we do this. We dismiss him as a concern as a concern, nearly every time we enter into sin. Verses 11 and 12, think about it, okay? When a person steals by deception and craft, he's acting like God cannot reach him. That person is concerned about what other people are detecting in him, whether other people have noticed, but not God. It's as if he thought people were the more important hurdle he needed to sneak things past. The person who thinks and lives like that is in a bad place. He is living as if the Lord doesn't matter or like he is unable unable to judge and expose men's secrets. He is able. The manipulating person doesn't honor the Lord as almighty. As almighty. What's more... Some will go so far as to raise their hand in the courts of men and swear by God's name. Let God strike me if I have defrauded my brother. Yes, I will tell the truth. Whoa. Man, don't do that. What does profaning God by fraud look like today? It's not just falsely swearing in court, okay? It's the whole lot. It's the whole lot of craftiness that those two verses were trying to unfold. 
example. What does it look like today? Maybe you have gone undetected by claiming you worked more hours than you did and submitted them for payment. That's profaning God's name, for sure. Or perhaps you put personal items on the business credit card. (laughs) Or you used your tongue to sow discord and take away another's reputation. We got into that a, a lot more last time as a way we steal from somebody. Or you fiddled. You fiddled with accounting to deny an employee his earned commissions. All of these are forms of manipulative theft. And just because you got away with it in the moment, the actions of your heart exposed your unbelief. Your unbelief. When you do these things, you profane his name, it says. You you act like he is impotent. He doesn't see. He doesn't hear. He doesn't know. Or he doesn't care and surely won't be able to do anything about it if he did. That's what we're doing. We're profaning the name of the Lord. No, the crafty thief does not honor God but disregards him. He profanes his name. So, that was last time. I just wanted to make mention of that last part of verse 12 where it says that we profane the name of the Lord. Now, let's look at Leviticus 19, 13, and 14. A different group of commands mentioned here with a different purpose, I believe. It says here, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. These are not just random tacked together Commands. There is some of that going on here, it seems. But they seem to be given to us in these groupings. And, and the end of the grouping always says something like, I am the Lord. Right? So that's why I took verses 13 and 14 as a grouping. Now, the first point I want to make about these verses is that the thrust of them, the thrust of them seems to be tied to that word in the first sentence, to the word oppress. And the final phrase tells us that one should be careful for God watches over those who are at a disadvantage. So you've got the one word about being oppressive and the other warning that God watches, that God should be feared because he sees these things. I think God looks at those who are disadvantaged in the same way he looks after the widow, 
and the orphan and the sojourner. And the examples of oppression Moses gives us here are ones where people can be mistreated because they are at a disadvantage in society. And unfavorable circumstances can come in many forms. So the couple given us here do not exhaust the category, all right? He gives us a couple only. Two examples Moses mentions are the hired worker and disabled people, the disabled person. Let's first consider the example of the hired worker. Some refer to this as the day laborer, okay? Not a full-time employee. This is a person that is being hired for the day. It's someone who gets hired, maybe works in the field during harvest time or planting season. And the person, he might not be back to work the next day. He might be working for another landowner tomorrow. So what were we supposed to do? You pay him his wages that day, when the day is over. That's what it says. You do not have his wages stay with you until the next day. You pay him. He's moving on. You could compare this kind of worker to those that you see that get lined up on a street corner because they need, they need to make some money. They, they know a company drives a truck or a bus to a certain location to say, hey, we need 20 people today, and they're all hoping that they're one of the 20. If they're hired, they get on the bus, they do the work, they get dropped back off. That's a day worker. Such a person doesn't know each day if he or she will be able to make some money. The language that describes this disadvantage, this person's disadvantage is even more clear in Deuteronomy 24, verses uh, 4 through, uh, verses four, verse 14 and 15, sorry. There, Moses writes this, same basic idea. It's almost a repeat, right? He says, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So it was a system, somewhat, to pay hired workers daily wages because they were poor and needy and depended on that money. Pay him before the sun sets, for he counts on it. And we know how that can be. I do, right? When you're in dire straits, you just wait for that check to show up. You just wait for it. We, we, at times with the, the company, you know, you get cash flow is an important thing. You got bills to pay, you got people to pay, and if you've got a customer out there that owes you $35,000 and you're waiting and waiting for that money and things start to get tighter and tighter and you still got to pay your, your vendors, you still have to pay 
pay your employees. You just wait for that check. Have they deposited it yet? Did it come in the mail? Where's that check? You call them up. Where's the money? We've got someone we deal with right now. It's a, a service that, that Tracy works with, that they, they do something for um, GAPA properties. And I think they must be on hard times right now because they set up this PayPal arrangement so we could pay through PayPal. But I tell you what, the second it shows up in her inbox, she's hearing from them if she doesn't pay that bill within a couple hours because I think they're really in a bad place right now. They are poor. They are needy. They need that money. So this end-of-the-day payment system was very important to these day laborers. And Jesus mentions it in one of his parables, Matthew 20, verse 8. He says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foremen, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. There was a lot more to that parable, but I'm just saying it was an understood practice. Certainly under such a system, the landowner, what is he doing? He's showing respect. He's showing respect for the condition of the poor and needy person. He wants him to get his wages. I want to pay you. I'll I'll, I'll guarantee you, as as a business owner, it feels good. Payday is the best feeling day, not because I'm getting money, right? Because the people are getting money money they've earned. That's a great feeling. To, to be able to affect uh, people and their families is, is a good thing. The landowner understands the hired worker should not, he should not be imposed upon to track him down as the landowner, waiting and waiting for the wages and then maybe even pleading, can you please pay me? That's, that's inappropriate. The landowner needs to take action. He needs to consider this worker. Gordon Gordon Wenham calls that kind of a thing the oppression of the day laborer and an exploitation of the weak. After all, okay... Under capitalism, a fair exchange was arranged. My labor for your money. Labor for wages. So the worker, if he's put in his day, he's owed his wages. It's it's not like he's getting an extra benefit. Unless he gets a bonus or something, that would be an extra benefit. And the one in in the position of control is the one who has the checkbook, okay? So he is, he has the leverage, he thinks. But he better not take advantage because God is watching. And to do so, for him to take advantage and to treat the laborer as a lesser man or woman is to act Cruelly, that's not God's way. Even so, when the employer realizes he has acted improperly, maybe he didn't know. Maybe he didn't understand what was happening. And it was a neglect by mistake. 
But even if that's the case, he's supposed to take and add to that worker's wages an extra 20%. Where does it say that? In other words, if he owed the day laborer $100 for the day, he does not get him his money, then he should pay him an additional $20. Additional $20 to make things right. A fifth. This is according to a previous instruction given in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. I'll just read it briefly. If he has sinned, speaking of the landowner in this case, right? It also applies to many other situations. But if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and, and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression, which is this, or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, okay, if, if, if it's one of those things that he did, he shall restore it in full and, should, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. There is guilt, okay, for mistaken neglect, because it's still neglect. The guilt is not as great as if you were truly trying to oppress someone, but there's still guilt. And this is what this person should do when he finds himself in this situation. And he shall bring to the priest, that's why it was located earlier in Leviticus, And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. Because he had guilt. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Okay? Those were the steps to correct the landowner's sin. By them, he could make right with the one he had wronged, in our case, the day laborer. He could make right with God, and he could help himself by being right with both. The next verse, okay, verse 14, moving past the day laborer. 14 deals with the societal disadvantage of being disabled. Moses writes, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. This again is is oppression. People who are trying to use their advantage against those with a disadvantage. That we should know out out of the gate. There's a complimentary passage I'm going to read in Deuteronomy 27, 18. It's where Moses tells the Levites, okay, you group of Levites go over on that mountain. You're going to be um, proclaiming the blessings of God for obedience. And you group of Levites go on that mountain. You're going to be proclaiming the curses of God for disobedience. Mount Ebal, the curses. Mount Gerizim, the blessings. Well, one activity on the curse side that would bring a curse in, is found in Deuteronomy 27, 18. He says, cursed, cursed be anyone who misleads. I want you to hear that word. 
who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. That was one of the things they shouted. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. So what is that getting at? What is all of this getting at? And how might we oppress the deaf and the blind and any others with a disability? Like, say, the lame. You know, you see sometimes one of these women athletes or men athletes or soldiers, and, and something happens to them, right? In war, they lose an arm, shark attack, legs gone, whatever. And immediately we go, that's disfigurement. That's gross. Or, or whatever, right? We, we have this, ee, what happened there? Right? And that could be understandable. But what we couple with that is how do we treat them differently? Do we treat them differently? Do we treat them as less than they are as people? So you've got the lame, you've got someone who might not be able to speak, the mute, the mute. you've got a facially deformed person, a person with chronic health problems, the cognitively, the intellectually, okay, weak person, and the elderly who often, very often, suffer a degree of some of one or two of these things. We're not to oppress these people. We are to respect them. We, we live in a society that can easily dismiss these disabled image bearers of God. In elementary school, okay, uh, fifth grade, I remember, Two guys there, they were picked on. They were the biggest guys in the class. If they would have gotten angry, I'm thinking they could have stopped most of us. But there were so many of us little, uh, what are the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park that are really terrifying but small? That's, there were so many of kids like that. But you'd have one real tall kid, I remember. His name was Scott. He's kind of a goofy-looking face, uh, saying that in memory. I wouldn't say that now. Okay. But he, he was really tall, and his body was contorted funny, and he picked his nose and so on, right? So kids would pick on him and make fun of him. Same with the other guy, bigger guy, fatter guy. Picked on, made fun of. That's oppressive. That, that, that is a disability. I, I think there is a disadvantage if you grow up in a society and you don't quite look the way People like, do you hire them? Ho hopefully some of these things would never cross your mind. Of course you could hire someone. I don't care what they look like. Would you hire a disabled person? Depending on the task. We had one fellow come in that was looking for a job, and he was thinking about becoming a, a service technician. Well, he had a kind of a bad leg. And we said, can you go... Can you go up and down on ladders? And he said, yeah, I think I can. Well, then he called back later on and said, you know, I got I to gotta be, I probably should be more 
forthright. It might be a hard time for me to go up and down on ladders. And he said, okay, well, that happens quite a bit in our business, so probably not going to work out. Maybe we quit trying to talk to people who are hard of hearing because it frustrates you. My wife is beginning to get frustrated with me because I don't always hear the ends of sentences or she says something really bizarre right in the beginning of a sentence that really wasn't that bizarre. I just heard the wrong word. (laughs) That can be be frustrating. Somebody who's really hard of hearing that you have to yell for them to hear what you're saying. Well, it's easier just not to carry on a conversation maybe. Or the person who's blind, what do you do with that? Maybe it's easier to just kind of quietly walk around them than carry on a conversation. Can they contribute too much to you anyhow? That's the problem of thinking. That's, that's the oppressive thinking. Can they contribute to me anyhow? Each of us is important to God. So, so when we oppress, God must think, wait, wait, wait a minute. Who do you think you are? Really? You know how quickly I could make you different? You know how quickly you could be found at a greater disadvantage than the person you just spent time ignoring? I made him in my image and you had better respect that. According to a Jewish commentator, Levine, He says this, to curse the deaf is to insult them. And here's what you got to hear. This is an amazing thought to me. To curse the deaf is to insult them or treat them lightly. He mentions the Hebrew word for curse there, curse the deaf. And the word is kalil. And it means to be light. Swift or trifling? Trifling. It means that you're treating a person as if they have little importance. Whereas Levine says, in Hebrew, in Hebrew, to be heavy, versus light, to be heavy and to be honored are related concepts. So how do you value someone, especially with a disability or at a disadvantage? No matter the disability or disadvantage, you are to find ways to honor the person and not treat the person lightly or as if they had little significance. Indeed, That's the opposite of how we are to treat a man or woman made in God's image. I was thinking about this. If I had a disability, 
and I know I have disadvantages. I have what some people would term disability, and that's fine, okay? But if I had a, a real obvious disability, I don't think I'd want to make a deal of it. I'm, I'm speaking from someone with not that kind of experience, so forgive me if I'm out of line here. But I, I think I don't want to make a big deal of it. Part of me thinks I don't want it to serve as an excuse for me. I, I'm a person. God's made me in his image. He's, he's made me like this, and I'm going to do what i got to do. I don't, I know I don't want people feeling sorry for me. Some people, they just lather in that stuff. Oh, feel sorry for me. Please, I'm, I'm so, so hard for me. I don't want that happening. And this is my wife. She can feel sorry for me. Quit nodding your head. I don't really want that. That would get very old in life. I remember a congregant having issues, health issues, years ago. And, uh, I would ask the person, how you doing, you know, to hear about the health issue. And it's, at some point, they did not even want to talk about the health issue because it became the, the general topic of conversation only. And I get that. But whether you feel sorry for me or whether I, I make excuses or you make excuses for me, mostly, I don't want you to diminish the rest of who I am. I don't want you to diminish the rest of who I am because I don't have an arm or because I can't see. I read a comment recently. It was a news article, I think, about Michael J. Fox. And I thought, wow, this is mature thinking. Now, Michael J. Fox was that actor that was really popular as a younger man, Back to the Future and some of these other shows and movies. I liked him, right? It was kind of, maybe I was a kid when he was a kid, right? But he's been severely, severely disabled by Parkinson's disease. It's just kind of really ravaged his body. And it changed the course of his whole life, from where he was to what you know hopes he might have had as a younger man to what... He is now as an older man. And the comment that he made was that he had been given a gift. And he says, it's a gift that keeps on taking. But then he said he'd have it no other way. And I thought, wow, that's really a sober way of looking at who you are now. J.H. Hertz, he takes this a little further. He, he says, the deaf and the blind are typical figures, are typical figures of all misfortune. Okay, in other words, they're a type almost, representing more than just deaf and blind. The deaf and blind are typical figures of all misfortune and inexperience and moral weakness. And by moral weakness, I don't believe he, he's saying real sinners. I think he's saying they're not very strong morally yet. They need growth, okay? Hertz is applying the verses here, therefore, 13 and, and 14, beyond the physical impairments mentioned by Moses. He's, he's applying these things beyond what's here in the text. 
And to the reader, it seems pretty obvious, okay, by just looking at it briefly, that the blind person, if you put something in front of them to trip them up, you, you are indeed putting a stumbling block there, and they're liable to fall, and that's a terrible thing to do. Or the deaf person, that they never pick up if you are cursing them or saying things about them behind their back. And However, Hertz, he says, no, this needs to be broadened as a concept. To include as disabilities those who lack experience and are perhaps less thoroughly trained in the things of God. You're starting to think this, really? Can you go that far with this kind of thing? In other words, they are spiritually unable to see well. Or they cannot hear the deep, deeper intellectual teachings. Like some of you right now might be going, I don't understand a thing he's saying. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope, I hope we can help that. I believe that Hertz is on to something important, and it's a road we've traveled in the past. What he's saying does seem legitimately embedded in these commands. Let me explain. We've already seen the commands in the past grow deeper and more meaningful than just what's right there in black and white. And it's intended by God to be more meaningful than we might first take it. So we've got to read the text. We've got to understand God. It's not just what's on the surface of the water that's important. All of the water below is important. The surface of the lake is certainly included, okay, this is a metaphor, but so are the waters below the surface. And you stop and think, well, if it doesn't say, it says put a stumbling block in front of the blind person, that's what's wrong. Don't read into it. Uh, don't curse a, a, a person who can't hear behind their back. You know, don't, don't do that. That's what he's saying is wrong. No. Think about this. Isn't it make sense to you and me that we're not learning as Christians in order to keep a bunch of rules, okay? That's not why we exist, in order to just tell me all the rules I should follow. Okay, that one over there, this one, this one, I'll try my best. We're not learning these things. God hasn't given us his word to just teach us a bunch of do's and don'ts. He's given us his words so that we can learn who he is, how he is. We're given his word to know him better so that we can imitate him, so that we can imitate him. And the, the rules, the law, the wisdom literature, They give us the blueprint. But we, want, but we want the building. We're after the building. So when we see this law today, these rules today mentioned, yeah, that's blueprint. 
What is the building really, really going to look like? Now, I'm going to play out this a little bit. Jesus applies the law, doesn't he, more deeply or thoroughly, let's use that word, thoroughly, in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught adultery. What? It's not just some physical act. Oh, I didn't commit adultery, though. No, it's, it begins in the heart. Looking on the woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Murder, too, it dives below the surface to what? Hatred of another, wishing them ill. So here in Leviticus 19.14, we have the command not to put a stumbling block before the blind. In Deuteronomy 27.18, cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. I think Jesus is warning against misleading the innocent like little children is applying this text that we're reading today. He's taking this text, I believe, and applying it to how we better be careful not to mislead even little children. There's uh, many translations. I, I found what I was looking for, I guess, in the Orthodox Jewish Bible for Matthew 18, 6 and 7. It's not weird. It's not out of the, out of the scope. This is what it says. Jesus' words, but whoever causes a stumbling block for one of these little ones who have faith in me, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about a blind person, literally. But he was talking about causing someone who was at a disadvantage to stumble and fall. The reverse, think about this. The reverse of putting a stumbling block in front of the blind would be to do the positive, to work hard to remove stumbling blocks. How do I get stumbling blocks out of their way if I see one, when I notice one? I don't think we should run around the world looking for all the stumbling blocks that people might have issue with, thinking it's our responsibility to fix it all. At some point, and in time, certainly, our heart will beat like God's heart. Same goes for helping the deaf when someone is cursing them. As Christians, we must be advocates for the disabled. Like God, we should come alongside the disadvantaged. I remember my mother one time, and she had already become older, She'd lost a little bit of her, I don't know, shrewdness, intelligence. I, don't, I wouldn't say intelligence, but... And shrewd almost sounds... That's not, that's not my mom, okay? But 
She'd lost a little bit of her shrewdness in her older age, and then a phone scammer called her up, okay? And the phone scammer wanted to get money from my mom, wanted to get a bank account number, get something worked out with the bank. And so she called my mom up, and she acted like one of the grandkids, okay? So the scammer did their homework, and she says, Grandma, this is Katoria, which is one of her grandkids. Grandma, this is Katoria. I need your help, right? I'm in, I'm in Europe. We're traveling, and I'm out of money. If you, could, you know, and on and on and on. And my mom was like, oh, Katoria needs help, you know, and she's thinking like a loving grandma would think. In her older age, she thankfully still reached out to other family members, sons and daughters, and said, I think Tori needs help. Mom, what's going on? Okay, who, who said this? Toria's, Katoria's in Europe? You know, or whatever. I don't remember all the details, but it was like, okay, no, someone's trying to get you to do this. They're faking it. They've done it. They've looked up a few things online. No, don't, don't give them. Don't worry about it. Katoria's fine. We'll call her up, you know, make sure. But that's what happens, okay? She is at a disadvantage now as an older person. And people will take and manipulate that. This congregation, I'll give you, I'll give, give you credit. We, we have taken up the cause, I think, of the elderly and disabled. Not, there's, not, there's more things that can't be done, but the fact that we put an upstairs bathroom with handicap accessibility uh, turnaround space and so on. It's, what a great blessing that was to some. And more recently with this lift, I mean, that was an arm and a leg. That cost us an arm and a leg. We could have gone without it, some would argue. Sure. They were expensive decisions. But our desire, what, was to give others the same advantage we have as people with full use of legs and arms and bladder control and whatever else, right? Now, I, I don't believe, okay, so this is where I, I'd warn against um, the person taking up whatever cause and fighting it and trying to make laws for it. I, I don't believe there was any injustice when we did not have an upstairs bathroom or a lift. I don't think anybody had done anything wrong. I'm only suggesting that we have looked at the spirit of the command and made things better. And that's what we should do. In the same desire, I, the elders, okay, we want to prepare and present understandable sermons, Sunday school classes, for those who have learning disabilities. It's not always easy. And we cannot really prepare sermons. Uh, we cannot really uh, prepare sermons geared to the lowest common denominator, if you know what I mean. But we try to teach plainly the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture. And the thing is, we don't want only to feed you soft food and milk like you were young children. For to become mature, people need solid food. And so we, we got to rely on each other, right? You as a congregant, fellow congregant, know what your 
pew sitting uh, person sitting next to you is understanding and thinking and knowing. And if they've got questions or, or problems understanding, help them. That will help us all. The elders need others in the congregation to help explain the messages to our weaker members. You do it with your children. I mean, that's a given. But we also have weaker members. We as elders want to feel like we did our best and that God will not find us guilty for placing stumbling blocks in front of those who have faith in Jesus. Now, what's the disadvantage to do? Two things, I think. Okay, you're, you're on the receiving end. You're, you're at disadvantage. First, seek justice from the one who did you wrong. This walks along the same path Jesus advised us to take. If your brother sins against you, you go and tell his, him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence or two or three witnesses. We have an example, okay, of someone, a godly man, going to someone else after he'd been wronged. It's in Genesis 21, 25 through 26. The servants of King Abimelech of Gerar, he was a king of Gerar, his servants had taken away a well of water from Abraham and Abraham's servants. They were the Gerardians or whatever they would be called were stronger people at the time. And at one point, Abimelech, he wanted to make a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham took that moment and he introduced to Abimelech the injustice. It says, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I, didn't, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham goes to someone who can make the wrong right. And he learns that Abimelech had no idea his servants had mistreated Abram's servants. Okay, that was good. Misunderstanding cleared up. Immediately, Abimelech corrected the injustice, and as a result, the two men made covenant together, and their people supported each other. So try to go to the one God has given the ability to restore justice. However, not all oppression is to be handled by a magistrate, by the legal system. I highly doubt teens, teens snickering at a blind man are to be called before the civil courts. But often oppression is severe enough that the civil authorities need to get involved. I think we must look to scripture for penalties in order to determine those parameters, the jurisdiction. Yet we know that many, many cases were brought before Moses in the wilderness before he took his father-in-law's advice and surrounded himself with elders to help him judge the simpler cases. Now, you may feel you're getting nowhere. All this fails. I'm still oppressed. You'd be feeling the same way the writer of Ecclesiastes felt. He says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, 
and there was no one to comfort them. It's an injustice for which you feel you have no one who can come to your aid, and this is your solution. If justice is not granted by the offender, then the victim should tell God about him. You should tell God about him. And this is whatever the size of the sin. The victim should pray about his injustice, making his appeal to the heavenly court. And if you are the oppressor at that point, look out. Look out. Change your ways. It brings the final short point that we are to fear God, for he is an avenger. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. How you treat the day worker and the blind person and the deaf demonstrates what you think of God. Your victim's maker. Finally, Psalm 35, 10 says, All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. The psalmist throughout that psalm turns to the Lord to contend for him against those who seek to do him wrong. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that uh, this does not fall on deaf ears, and if it it's certainly got long, Lord, but that what we picked up along the way would, would go with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.